From 1969 to 1972, there was one dominant force in the sport of archery, and its name was John Chester Williams. Born in 1953 from Pennsylvania, John Williams completely dominated the sport of archery virtually from when he first stepped onto a world championship field until he left as a professional archer after winning the Olympic Games. In 1969, John Williams won the silver medal at the Valley Forge World Championships. In 1971, at the York World Championships, he ran away with the gold medal. And then, when archery returned to the modern Olympic calendar in 1972 in Munich, he won the individual gold medal in the sport of archery. He also won the World Field Championships in 1972. John Williams is another one of our archery legends that we are privileged to be able to speak to today. And John has many distinctions. First of all, and probably most well-known, is the fact that he's the first modern Olympic champion in the sport of archery. Um, 1972 was when, through the work of people like Inger Firth, Archery was brought back into the calendar of the modern Olympic Games, and we have been there ever since. And we're speaking with John today from his home in Arizona. It is a privilege once again to speak with you, sir. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure, George. I appreciate your call. John, the, the greatest accomplishment that people know of that you've done uh, commonly, you know, the average person knows John Williams was the first Olympic champion in the sport of archery. If they can remember, if they can remember back that far. Well, but there's some other very noteworthy things that I'd like to talk to you about as your journey began, starting back when you were about 17 in 1969. Is that right, 17? Uh, more like uh, 15. And you took silver at the World Championships. And I took silver by three points to Mr. Hardy Ward in my home state of Pennsylvania at the World Championships. At your very first World Championship, but not your last one. Correct, correct. Your next World Championship came in 1971. Uh, in, in, uh, in York, England. In York, England. And the home of the York Round, of course, and the reason, one reason why we have the modern target, the way that it looks today, is that it started with the you know, the York target back in the day. But uh -huh. 1971, and you were ready. You didn't lose those few points. You won. I was, I was, I was, pretty, I was pretty stoked in 1971. Uh, the only hitch in uh, the whole giddy-up of the situation in, in England was when I got off the plane, uh, and we were all traveling with one-piece bows at that time. There were no takedown bows, so mm -hmm. I had a Hoyt Pro Medalist in a nice, soft vinyl case that when it came down out of the baggage claim, you could easily tell that the top limb was broken. So what did you do in those days before replaceable limbs and backup bows? <laughs> well, I had a backup bow. It happened to be my dad's bow, and instead of 37 pounds, it was 39 pounds. So I, I learned in a real quick hurry, you know, how to how to handle that weight. And, and in actuality, it probably helped me out because uh, it got pretty doggone windy during the 
last 50 and 30 meter uh, distance in England. John, was this your first overseas trip um, as a as a shooter? Um, overseas, yes. I had made an Ambassador Cup team uh, prior to that. Uh, I think uh, 69 World uh, Nationals, probably. Um, so I'd gone out of the country. I'd gone to Canada, but I'd never been overseas. So this was a, you know, a long plane flight. You see that bow come off that thing. Where does your mind go? Are you immediately going, okay, plan B? Uh, well, plan B was in, in the other case. And I just wanted to make sure that plan B was still in one piece. Um, and, uh, had a little help getting the arrows all tuned and everything. That took that took a little bit. Yeah, but, I mean, two uh, pounds is not trivial when you're talking, especially with aluminum arrows. Two pounds is a big deal. Right. So what what was your, how did you handle it? What did you do? I shot a lot of arrows as, as, as I did uh, uh, during a situation in, Munich, I, you know, there's, there's two ways to deal with it. You, you don't deal with it or you shoot your way out of it. And in, in England, I was probably shooting 200 plus arrows a day, you know, the four or five days that we're over there to practice prior to the, uh, to the tournament event. Uh, so just practice and I was I was probably in the best shape of my life then George so it the two pounds was significant but it it didn't it didn't play that way in my head now you were obviously shooting a clicker at the time um, tell us a little about your form and tell us about your philosophy of, of shooting uh, during that era yeah, let me let me back up and just point out that like Daryl Pace you're a pretty slender and tall fellow with good alignment. Yeah. So take and it the the alignment was 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 the key that that I focused in on, and I'll say I uh, my dad Ed Williams was my coach, and he learned the hard way by himself, and then he um, in an effort to get get better he joined a field archery club triborough archers in pennsylvania uh and after a significant number of weekends down at the triborough archery clubs we we started out shooting field mostly um we didn't even know what speed it was uh but uh after a short period of time my mother decided that she wanted to shoot. If he was going to put in all of these weekends out at the archery club, she wanted to go too. Uh, well, he began to coach her, and within less than a year, he couldn't beat her anymore. And she was actually an alternate for the 1967 world team. So obviously, so coming would, from a family of archers, you uh, you, know, would, you started out pretty young. She was young, a very right? accomplished, yeah, very accomplished archer. And my dad was, whether he knew it or not at the time, was a very accomplished coach. The philosophy and, of shooting in those days, um, if we look at Hardy Ward from 1969, long holding uh -huh. times and very... Um, 
muscle-oriented shooting. Did you do it any differently? Uh, mine was much, uh, I never, ever, ever held as long as pretty. I don't think anybody did. Um, my philosophy, my dad's philosophy was to set up and, and he always said similar to, uh, shooting a rifle. You get the right, the rifle's already in line. Okay. So you become the rifle and you get all of your physical bones lined up. And that way you don't have to muscle it. The bones are in line now. And, and basically through leverage, uh, you're, you're holding the power of that shot. And setup, clicker setup was, was the key. Uh, I was always down on that chisel point within maybe an eighth of an inch of, of making the clicker go off. That's where I would settle into my anchor. And as soon as the sight was steady on the gold, it was just that, that minute squeeze to make the shot go off. Uh, my dad's philosophy and my, and, and my future philosophy towards teaching other people was that the clicker's there for a reason, but it's it's now it's now a triggering device. It's not a draw check. And when you get to full draw, and you tell your 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 right brain says, "Okay, you're you're ready. Everything's ready. Make the shot go off." It's your left brain that makes it go. And so the shorter the distance of time lapse between the right side saying, okay, I'm ready, and the left side making it go, if they could come together simultaneously, somebody wouldn't need a clicker. If your right brain could say, it's, it's, you're ready, and your left brain could say, make it go at the same time, you wouldn't need a clicker. It'd just go. Unfortunately, we're not all wired that way. (laughs) (laughs) Ray Rogers was the only one that I remember that could shoot and could shoot without a clicker well. Is it true that Ray Rogers managed to shoot over 1,300 points in a uh, non- um, sanctioned competition at one time? I'm not aware of that. I, I couldn't verify I, I'd that. I heard at stories. All. I'd heard stories. It wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me because when Ray was when Ray was on, you know, he was he was tough. He was tough. He was one of my idols when I was, you know, 14, 15. So let's move back to getting off the plane at uh, I presume Heathrow. And you're looking yep. at this situation where you've got a broken bow. You've just switched over to your dad's bow, which is your backup bow. It's two pounds heavier. You get to the practice field. Now you're working on adapting your tune and yourself to the two-pound difference. And you are at the venue, and you're shooting. And you start out. Uh, the weather was brisk. I uh, know we weren't wearing shorts. We were, we're all wearing long pants and, and, and long sleeves. 
the thing that stood out in England was when we're all wearing those little straw hats back then to keep the keep sun off our head. Oh, yes. Very stylish. And, oh, yeah. And when Larry Smith and I stepped out of the lunch tent um, to shoot the final 30 meters, my hat blew off. And I don't think it touched the ground for 50 yards. That's not a good sign. <laughs> And it was it was blowing dead sideways, left to right, and by the end of thirty meters, I was the only American still shooting his clicker. Everybody else had stopped shooting the clicker and just tried to. They, they could they couldn't make it go when you're crossing, you know, sometimes from one ring to one ring at thirty meters. Sure. Uh, I think my final 30 meter score was like a 315 or something like that. When your average was in the 40s. Right. Yeah. Back, back then it was, you know, back then we're, we're pushing 340. So you're in a tough situation. Um, mentally, what was your thought at the time? Do you, do you recall what kind of mental game you might have applied from the standpoint of execution and trying to trying to complete the shot? It was all pretty much pretty much the same. Um, once once I once I got in the groove uh, with with being able to hold the weight and and make the shot go off the way I wanted to. Um, it really didn't make a whole lot of difference to me. You're standing on top of that podium, wearing your USA uniform. It's your first gold medal in international competition. Uh, I should say in, in a world international competition. Were your thoughts directly going toward the Olympic Games by that point? What were you, what were you at mentally in well, terms of getting ready for Munich? Well... I was I was preparing. I feel like I was preparing for the Olympic Games um, from the time I was about thirteen. And it was known because by nineteen sixty eight or so that the uh, games, the modern games, would have archery back. Right, something in that time frame. The sixty eight games in Mexico City is when it was uh, announced. Right. And in 1967, I won the, the Junior Boys Nationals, National Championships. Uh, 67, I would have been 14. So your focus that from was, that time, from when you heard that, that the games would have archery again? Well, as soon as my dad found out that the Olympics, that Archer was going to be in the Olympics. He told me, "You've just shot your last junior tournament. Put you in with the uh, put you and in with the me, uh, regular put, round after that. Then, huh? Put me in with the men and made me shoot against Hardy Ward and Ray Rogers in the nationals, and I took." third in Tahlequah, Oklahoma at the Nationals. 
and you had people like Dave Keggy Jr. And um, I mean, you know, just a host of highly competitive shooters at the time. Absolutely. Absolutely. All of which were my idols at the time. And you were right there with them. So you sounds like your dad put you on the right path, uh, putting you in the deep end of the pool, as it were, right from that early age. Uh, that was that was the deepest end of the pool I'd ever experienced. And then you just stayed there. Um, you know, 69, you, you took the silver medal. 71, you won the championship in England. Uh, let's move forward to preparation between world championship in 71 and arriving in Munich in 72. What was your daily life like, more or less, in terms of both practice and maybe other things you might have done to prepare? Well, uh, after the world championships in 1971, um, I graduated from high school and applied for a scholarship to Penn State University. Unfortunately, um, due to partially to my study habits and partially to the amount of traveling that I would be doing even during the school year for, for various tournaments and everything, um, I had about a 2.7 GPA through high school, and Penn State did not look at my archery qualifications before they looked at my grades. Sure. So they looked at my grades, and they sent me a declination letter. And the next day, following in the footsteps of Hardy Ward, I joined the Army. Recognizing that at the time the United States Army did have a uh, unit that would allow for athletes to be able to prepare for the Olympic Games. Well, a, a unit, I, I'm not sure I'd call it a unit. I think there were four of us. Ah. Uh, there was Hardy Ward, Ray, um, uh, Hardy Ward, myself, Russ Sill, and Tom Jeffries. So four people and, uh, who the Army allowed to basically prepare for the games uh, under the terms of, of your service. Yes, I, I joined in uh, August of, of 1971 and did my advanced infantry training and my basic training. And after that, I got assigned to... Um, Special Services, definitely not Special Forces, uh, Special Services Division in Fort Myer in Washington, D.C. And from that, from the point in time where I arrived in D.C., uh, the Army took care of us. They took care of Hardy and I. Um, they paid us what they called Temporary duty, TDY pay. Uh, I think it was at that time, I think it was $25 a day. And we made 10 cents a mile if we drove. Wow. And we drove pretty, and we drove pretty much everywhere. To get to tournaments. To get to the tournaments and everything. And then when Russ Sill uh, got transferred in a little later than, than Hardy and I, um, 
he had a Volkswagen camper and I essentially rode in that Volkswagen camper all over the United States with Russ because we were all going the same places. And uh, so the army really, you know, basic training and advanced infantry training hurt me because they put too much muscle mass on this tall, slender frame. Uh, you, you saw pictures of me in Munich. In, in Munich, I was probably six foot one and a half and all of about 165 pounds soaking wet. Um, when I got out of basic and advanced infantry training, I was six foot one and a half and 225. Wow. A real transformation. And, and I was, and, and I was too muscle bound. I couldn't make things work. I started eating at McDonald's every day and <laughs> dropping, you know, dropped 20, 25 pounds, uh, you know, relatively quickly, not eating all of the, you know, high protein, high starch, high, high, you know, a lot of meat all of that stuff that the army feeds you to put you at your, I was probably at my optimum fighting weight if I wanted to fight somebody, but I certainly wasn't at my optimum weight to shoot archery. So that's a, that was a real um, change in direction for that period of time. Uh, how did you get back to where you need, you, you mentioned that you ate at McDonald's a lot, but uh, what else did you do to prepare for Munich? Uh, Hardy and I uh, developed a, a regimen. We were working out in the gym. Um, we were running, which is something that I had done a little bit of in high school, and I and I really enjoyed running. And we both knew enough about physiology uh, that you know if you can slow your heart rate down, it's going to benefit you. Um, when you're under pressure. And so we, we just, we trained together. We went to the gym together. We ran together. Uh, we shot together. I mean, literally just thousands and thousands and thousands of arrows. We didn't have an army job. This was our job. So a lot of shooting, a lot of travel to tournaments, a lot of exposure to pressure. Um, training with people who were like-minded from the standpoint of achieving high things, you know, two world champions working together. It sounds like a really good situation in a lot of ways, especially at that age. It, it really was. It really was. I was really sad in a way that Hardy didn't make the team too. Let's talk about the Olympic trials process from that era a little bit. Basically, one tournament to decide the team. Is that how that went? Well, you you had to shoot a certain number of qualifying scores back then, and I I, I, I want to say a qualifying score for men was eleven fifty. I don't think it was twelve hundred yet, because there were very few people shooting over twelve hundred consistently at that point in time. Sure. Um, and so, well, I think I broke the world record at the Olympic trials. I know I broke it 
at the World Championship Trials in 71 in St. Louis. Um, that's that's where I really started having my sort of coming out party. Um, and uh, But you're right, it was all one tournament in Oxford, Ohio, same place where they held the Nationals. Yeah. Uh, um, they, you know, two feet is double feet over two days, over four days rather. And, um, a lot of pressure, a lot sure. of pressure. And, and, and again, here, here comes John, you know, I don't think I made the, the, the board until the beginning of 70 meters, the first feet. Of. So a slow start. And then there you are. Yeah. You know, you had a lot of contemporaries then gunning for those three slots on the team. You know, besides the, the people like Ed Eliason and yourself, Daryl Pace was there trying to make the team. Um, I am, you know, a good friend of mine, Steve Lieberman, uh, yep. was there. Uh, Steve, a top shooter at the time, one of your competitors, also Absolutely. from Pennsylvania. And, um, you know, Steve had done really well in Italy the year before. He was one of the shortlist people to uh, possibly make the team, along with yourself, yep. along with Hardy, along with Ed, and uh, and a number of others that uh, I, I by no means mean to leave anybody out of it, but uh, it really was a lot of pressure. Um, how did you feel? What did you? What were you thinking by the time you got on the board at 70? Same thing that my dad always taught me was continue to shoot like you're 20 points behind. And so you finish the tournament, they announce the team, and you know you're headed for Munich. How many um, yep. how many weeks before the actual games did this take place? Goodness gracious, that was in August, and the Olympic Games were the first few weeks in September, um, the latter part of August. So it was it was pretty quick. Um, I want to say the trials were in very late July or early August because nationals were always in you know the first week in August. I thought. Um, so it was maybe only about three or four weeks. We we left uh, Oxford, went straight from there to uh, a venue in Washington, D.C., where we got outfitted with all of our clothes and suitcases and, and all of the stuff. Uh, and I think we got to go. I think I got to go home for a week or 10 days before getting on the plane and, and heading for Munich because we were, we were there before, you know, three or four days before the opening ceremonies, we were there through the opening ceremonies, uh, and, uh, you know, through the, through the entire, through the entire games. So you fly to Munich and you arrive at your first Olympic games, your first venue, first athlete village, um, archery's late, on the schedule for the games at the time. Is that right? Our true is the last four days. And so um, there were obviously a lot of things going on with that particular Olympic Games, um, tragic events there. Um, I presume that everybody was aware of what was going on and um, must have had some impact. Well, it it's had always had an impact um you know the 
the incident happened, um, the the atmosphere of the of the entire game changed from uh, one of enthusiasm uh, to one of fear. Um, we went from literally smuggling girls in underneath the chain link fence to so that we could get it, get them into the disc attack in the Olympic Village yeah. and the next morning you have armed guards walking the perimeter 25 meters apart with semi-automatic weapons slung over their shoulders and there were literally tanks in the parking lot in the parking garage. How did that affect you personally from the standpoint of uh, your focus on what you were there for? Well, it's pretty hard to stay focused at that point in time. Uh, We couldn't turn on a TV and understand really what was going on because everything was being broadcast in German. And of course, none of us spoke German. We didn't have an interpreter. But my mother and dad and sister were in Munich Um, and they were staying with a family that had taken, taken, uh, people in from the United States. Uh, they had a son and daughter who both spoke very, very fluent English. Um, and all of the athletes in the village had been told that morning, if you have someplace other than here that you can go go while this thing gets resolved. Um, So I went to uh, the Wolf family was was where my mother and dad and Amy were staying. And so I went out there and they were able to, you know, completely keep us updated and everything through the whole thing. I did not go back to the village until after uh, the terrorists had left the village and gone to the airport, and then that situation happened there. Um, but it it post we had already had our one official practice day on the official field. That's the only day you get, and so then the games were postponed for twenty four hours. Uh, Bud folks, bless his heart. The U.S. Went team, the US the team leader and coach. Correct. He went around the village gathering up newspapers and stuffed newspapers into a box so that we could shoot five meters in the room. A makeshift target. All, all, the, all the practice fields were all closed. At that, at that point in time, to be honest, we didn't know if we were going to get a chance to compete or not. Not to mention the fact that even coming into that, um, I, I, I was having some issues. I was having some difficulties with my timing. Um, and again, I, I was under, under my dad's scrutiny, uh, on the practice, first one on the practice field, last one off the practice field, pretty much every day, uh, shooting probably two, 250 arrows a day, trying to shoot my way through this. And the day off was probably the best thing that ever happened because it allowed all of that 
training to just soak in a little bit, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. So here we are in Munich. Um, obviously, a lot of a lot of uh, things on your mind, uh, including your own personal issues with your shot execution. Now comes the day of competition, and you're going to shoot a a, uh, a double feeda, and you're going to start out at 90 meters, and you're starting out with two ends for practice, and then the show is on. What's in your mind at the time? Well, my my two practice ends went pretty well. Um, as they often do. Um, and, uh, I went, went back and talked to dad just a little bit before the first end walked up and shot my first arrow in the 10 ring for score for score. Well, that's a good start. That must've been a, a nice and boost for your confidence. Well, it, it, it was cause that didn't normally happen. And I ended up shooting a 50, the first end for score. And they started rolling names down at 10 and 9 and 8. And there were some 45s and 46s and 47s. And I can't remember who was in second with a 49. So you're number one on the board after the first end. Yep. Were you aware of it? I mean, obviously you are because, I mean, you're telling me, but was it something? Oh, yeah, that, would, did you I have the habit of looking at the board? <laughs> I was sorry. scared to death. I cut you off. Let me let me go through that one more time. Were you in the habit of looking at the board at the time? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you couldn't help it. You know, when they got all 10 men and all 10 women on this great big board that's probably 60 feet wide by 20 feet tall uh you couldn't help but be aware of it and uh so there's john williams in the number one slot on that board what's going through your mind then well i went back to my dad again and i said wow that's something different yeah, because you're used to kind of a slow start and then coming into it, and here you are right out of the gate. And I said, what do I do now? And he said, just like he always did, shoot like you're 20 points behind. And it worked. <laughs> and it worked. <laughs> and did you did you stay on top of the board uh, for most of the uh, distance, or did that shift a little bit? No, I, I led from... The first end to the last end. All the way through. All the way through. Well, that had to have been a, a confidence builder as well, especially when the point separation started to show up a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I, I think the final was 47 points. And I, I, I threatened Bud folks that I was going to shoot my last three arrows in the pond. Because you didn't need them. Because <laughs> they didn't need them. But uh, with three arrows left to go, my competitor and very good friend, uh, Victor Sidorup from Russia, yeah, uh, came over and gave me a kiss. Everybody knew you were, you were the winner by that point. Right. But what I didn't understand is after I shot my last three arrows, he came back and gave me another kiss. 
<laughs> because I just broke the 30 meter world record. And in fact, I think you broke the double feet of world record as well uh, with your total Olympic score. Yeah, single feet of 1268 broke the world record at that point in time and following it up with a 1260. Um, and by the way, that was a 1268 with a miss. Wow. And, you know, the, the, it's a touching thing. Victor Sidoric, who, uh, who's a fantastic human being. Um, Absolutely. You know, and, and a great coach uh, over the years. Um, remember, these are supposed to be our political enemies, right? The, the Cold War was in full bloom. The Vietnam War right. was going on. There was all sorts of... Oh, we were, we were all accusing the Russians of being professional athletes. Yeah. Exactly. But all they were doing was the same thing that the United States started doing again, you know, with Hardy and I. They put, Victor was in the service. He was conscripted into the Russian army to shoot arrows. Under Coach Belov, no less, who was a Red Army general, you know, that kind of thing. Um, you know, it, it was a different world, but... It was. Um, strict amateurism was the rule of the day. And, um, yep. you know, the, the de Coubertin principles of amateurism basically prevented you from earning money as an archer at the time. So programs like that of the army, um, did allow you to have the opportunity to, to train, but you weren't really getting paid extra per se for shooting arrows. No. You know, not at all. And you not couldn't take money from you couldn't take money from, you know, um, there was no contingency or sponsorships for non-professional shooters, of course. So you weren't you weren't able to uh, do much with that from the standpoint of uh, uh, making a living, you know, as an archer. Unlike today, when a guy like Brady is able to provide for his family as a recurve shooter and countless shooters in other countries are able to do the same. Um, so you Amateurism had... was so strict back in the 70s that I had to write Earl Hoyt a check for a dollar for my TD-1. Which was the bow that you shot at the, uh, at the Munich Games. At the Munich game. We neglected right. to mention that uh, technology had advanced between your world championships and the uh, the Olympic Games, and you had a takedown bow at the, uh, yeah. at the games. Yeah. The Hardy and our Doreen and I were the only two that had them, I believe. Doreen Wilbur, of course, the women's champion of those Olympic Games, a housewife yep. from Kansas, of all places, and uh, another remarkable American archer. Um, I, wish, I wish she were still around for us to talk to. I actually had her bow for some time in my old office. Uh -huh. uh, she had given it to the Easton Foundation, and uh, I had uh, cleaned it up and put it together, and it's on display today. But uh, another very her, fine her, human her, being. Her TD1 from Munich? Yeah. Okay. One of one of two. I'm not sure it's the particular one that she shot when she won. but uh, uh huh yeah, pretty remarkable stuff. Um, Mine is residing in the Archery Hall of Frame in Springfield, Illinois, at the Bass Pro Shops there. Yeah, 
What was it like standing on that podium uh, in your American team uniform? It's really difficult to put words to something like that. I, I can feel that you're um, emotional about it even after all these years, John. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I can't, I can't watch the flag go up at a football game without getting emotional. Sure. Because I was then and am now still a very red, white, and blue patriotic American. Everybody that knows you knows that. And, uh, you know, we take pride in what you achieved there. But that was not the last of your achievements. You started out as a field archer. <laughs> yeah. And coming full circle, and by the way, I started out as a field archer too, so, you know, I, I, I can relate a little bit to uh, the idea, at least, that field archery makes you a very flexible shooter because you, you have to... 10 or 11 years old, I used to love shooting the animal round. <laughs> Absolutely. But, it, you know, it makes you a flexible shooter because I think that a field archer understands the relationship of body position, execution, and being able to figure out distance and those things also gives you a good mental game. And so I think there's an advantage to field archery as a preparation for target archery. You know, my coach, Dick Tone, uh, started out as a field archer as well. You know, they called it roving back then. Yep. And I think it has yep. a lot of value. Would you suggest today that uh, maybe target archers ought to dabble in some field if they can? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, and I think target archers, specifically these Olympic uh, archers, need to shoot some 90 meters. I mean, I, I, I'll tell you, my dad made me shoot 110 yards to practice for 90 meters. To push it even more than what you would get in competition. Well, because you would be amazed, everybody would be amazed at the difference between a shot which is going to catch the right nine at 3 o'clock at 90 meters that is now a right seven at 110 yards. If it caught the seven ring, it might be a six. Um, that right-hand 10 that Brady shoots at 70 meters, at 90 meters, that's going to be a seven or an eight. Absolutely. And carrying that philosophy on with me as I was coaching because there was one little clip that we missed was after 1972 in Munich, uh, I coached Luann Ryan, who is the 1976 Olympic women's gold medalist. And I made Luann shoot 90 meters with me. In order to prepare her for 70. I completely agree. And I had a similar conversation a couple of weeks ago with Daryl Pace. And, uh -huh. and I want to get into your coaching. But uh, before then, um, World Field Championship. 
Yes. After Munich. Udine, Italy. I actually celebrated my 19th birthday on the plane between Munich and Udine, Italy, uh, where I had uh, basically because Russ Sill talked me into it, I, I didn't shoot that much field anymore. And I was unfamiliar with this Olympic style and unmarked distances. And, and I had no clue oh until I got together with Russ Sill uh, as to how, how to guess this stuff. You know, uh, I had shot, I'd never shot instinctive. I'd always, from the time I was 10 years old, I had a sight on my bow and I knew what, what the distance was when, when I stepped up to the stake and I set my sight for that distance. So this was, this was something really, really different, but, um, I adapted and developed a system, uh, that, that got me, got me on the team, got me pretty close and uh went to Udine, Italy with with my system um and after the first three targets the officials caught on to my system and told me I couldn't do that anymore oh boy what I was doing is I was drawing up and using my sight ring to measure if you will the amount of physical paper target paper that I could see in that sight ring and based on how many inches of paper I could see I could extrapolate that into what distance I was standing at but I couldn't do it all while standing at full draw so I'd come up to full draw I'd do my measuring in my head I'd let down and then I'd set my sight yeah it's the let down part they caught you on you're not it supposed was to. The Back then, you couldn't do that. <laughs> so, so did you figure something but, else out? Did you? Uh... Well, it just made me hold a lot longer. Ah, it, it made me. It made me guess a little bit closer and hold a little bit longer on that first shot, and then I was either having to aim high or low. Um, yeah, because you which, couldn't. You couldn't obviously let down and reset your sight. That wasn't allowed either. So right. You know, if I see six inches of paper, that means I'm at 37 meters and I had my sight set for 40 meters when I walked up. And so now I'm three meters and, and it only cost me one arrow. I, I interpreted the, the differences backwards and I, I did miss one arrow because I had set my sight for one distance and, and was extrapolating and did it the, the opposite way and ended up shooting one right at the very bottom of the bale. But uh, I guarantee uh, you, you're not the first person to do that. I can, I can relate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everybody has a similar system, I think. And, uh, you know, just, you, you just got to practice it, you know, you've accomplished so many things and, have gone into a world field championship and once again arrived on the top step of the podium. Where do you decide to go from here? 
Well, at, at that point in time, I decided to do the only thing that in my mind was logical to do at the time. And that was I put in my application to join the Professional Archers Association. And you did indeed do that. Yep. I came back and, and tried to defend my national title uh, unsuccessfully in 1973. And at that point in time, uh, on the field after the nationals, I signed a professional sports contract with AMF wing archery. And you were the face of, uh, wing archery bows for some time after. Yep. And until the, the whole compound thing really, really started, uh, going and for some reason they they fell behind on that and wing didn't didn't make that many competitive compounds they had a real good real good guy there frank ketchum uh but he couldn't come they, they just couldn't compete with jennings at that point in time i have a feeling that uh some folks who might have owned Harley-Davidson's from that era might have something to say about AMF's ownership of various companies at the time, but we, not, we don't need to go into that. Right, right. At the same time, um, you're becoming uh, something of a sought-after coach. Well, I, I started um, a archery program uh, that is still now in existence and thriving well at Texas A&M University in College Station, Texas. Uh, when I, that's where, when I got out of the Army and when I signed my professional sports contract with uh, AMF, um, Bob Lee, the owner of Wing, um, at that point in time, he pulled a few strings, got me into Texas A&M, and I don't remember all of the manufacturers. I know Easton donated a whole bunch of uh, arrows. Uh, I don't know where all the bows came from. I don't recall, but, uh, you know, we, we actually got an archery program started at Texas A&M. Uh, I went to Texas a I attended Texas A&M for about a year and a half. And then... Um, traveled to California to visit um, Don Rabska, uh, somebody you're very well acquainted with. Yes, indeed. And um, shot some arrows with Don Rabska in preparation for uh, the Las Vegas shoot in 1973. And literally got so sunburned on Christmas Day in San Bernardino, California, uh, while out shooting, that after the Vegas tournament, I had driven back to Texas, and it took me about seven days to get everything shut off, packed up into a U-Haul, put the car behind the U-Haul, and headed for Southern California because I had finally found the heat that I'd been so searching for since running away from Pennsylvania. No snow shovels. No snow shovels there. So, and, and actually it's funny you say that because I actually traveled from Texas to California with a snow shovel in the U-Haul. 
<laughs> Didn't need it when you got to Southern California, though. No, no, no. So but now you're... there I started attending um, school at, at San Bernardino Valley uh, Junior Community College, uh, later transferring to um, uh, Cal State San Bernardino, where I eventually graduated from. But it was during my time at uh, San Bernardino Valley that I met, you know, got to be really good friends with Don Rabska, uh, met Luann Ryan, um, and uh, a number of pretty good archers at, at that point in time. The collegiate program was absolutely fantastic at that point in time. Sure. Um, seems like every major college, you know, had an archery team, had an archery program. Um, I can remember names like Gary Riley and, and John Smith and Debbie Hammer and Scott Page. Um, I firmly believe that, that, uh, Gary Riley and uh, Scott Page probably would have made the Olympic team in 1980 if we had uh, if we had not boycotted those boycotted. games. Yeah, correct, yeah. correct. I think I would have had three or four students on the on the eight person team between men and women, and. Uh, but Luann was my my crowning accomplishment there, uh, as far as her, you know, coming up so quickly uh, when she got to Montreal, nobody knew who she was. It was her first international tournament, also, and uh, you know, for her to have the mental game that she did to hold up to that was was just amazing. Absolutely. And Al Henderson and I had a very, very good working relationship to where, you know, I was I was of course I was her personal coach, but I was not the Olympic coach. I was not the Olympic team coach. Um, I was sitting in the stands behind her like a spectator. Uh, but Al was relaying notes for me as much as I could and much as he could and keep track of everybody else too at the same time. But, uh, it was, it was a, a very mentally challenging time for me not being on the line, not shooting the arrows, not being the one under control. Sure. It's a difficult thing when you're coaching instead of performing and, uh, you know, the uh, preparation and everything else that goes into it culminates on that line. And there's not much you can do if you can't talk to the shooter. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a testament to Al Henderson uh, that he was not, you know, one of these coaches with an ego that was unwilling to work with other people. He uh, He had a reputation of being somebody who was all about the team effort and uh absolutely i think absolutely. you know if he were around to talk to today i think he would express the idea that you were part of that team from the standpoint of providing input to that performer uh Luann ryan 
and helping uh-huh. her accomplish uh, something that no other American woman has managed to accomplish in the time since, which was to become the individual Olympic champion. I certainly hope that's going to change this year. I certainly do, too. Coaching was not the only archery-related activity for John Williams, though. Eventually, you uh, became a product manager for Yamaha, which uh, had been making bows since about 1964. Talk to us a little bit about that. You, you've gone ahead and finished college, which certainly was useful from the standpoint of working for a company like Yamaha. Yeah, I had I had finished college and was actually working at a gun shop a, a, a gun and archery shop uh, called Pony Express in, in Sepulveda, Encino, California. Yes. Yep. Yep. I used to. Uh, I used to. I used to uh, have a great friend there, uh, Larry Applegate. And I, I know. I know Larry. And uh, uh, Don Rabska took me there the first time I went there, and I used to be a regular customer. But uh, yep. You know when I yep. worked at Easton and Van Nuys and uh, Pony Express was a sort of legendary place. You know, it's. Uh, it, it really was. It I, really I actually, was. I actually met Larry Mudgett from LAPD SWAT there. He was my first pistol instructor, and um, oh, okay. So there was a there was a, a a lot of a lot of aspects of my life that came out of out of Pony Express. It's kind of funny uh-huh. that we have that that sort of uh, tie there. Yeah. So you were working uh, at Pony Express in uh, in near Encino, and uh, what happens from there? Well, as I recall, for some reason, I don't remember why, but uh, was it Tony Preston that was the previous product manager? Last name was Preston. I can't remember. I think it was Tony, but he was let go. Uh, Yamaha let him go and they put out an advertisement looking for for somebody and uh, I found out about it and put in my application went through a couple interview processes and all of a sudden was instead of going to work in a pair of jeans and a t-shirt I had to show up in a suit and tie with all these Japanese people (laughs) who were so formal but uh, it was uh, it was an exciting time because I was able to have a little freedom to be in control of who their staff shooters were. And I was very intimately knowledgeable of all of the United States staff shooters. I mean, I, I had a Yamaha in Daryl's hand. I had a Yamaha in Rick's hand. They may not have ended up shooting them for whatever reason. Well, Rick, um, Rick did. Rick did. Rick did for quite a while, yeah. So we're back in the 1970s. John Williams has transitioned from being the top shooter in the world to working for a global Japanese company selling bows, Yamaha. And uh, you're still shooting by this point? Are you still competing? I was I was still competing uh, both in the amateur tournaments as a, as a professional, of course, um, and uh, in uh, PAA tournaments. How many shooters are you coaching by this point? Probably half a dozen or ten on a on a 
semi-regular to semi-casual basis. Um, I worked with anybody that wanted to work with me. You know, if I, I, you know, I wasn't really particular. I wasn't charging anybody. Um, if, if you came and asked me a question, I'm I'm gonna share what I what I know. Um, and I was just in a, a right environment with in Southern California with all of the archers that you know were there and all of the colleges that were there. I mean, uh, you know, most of the the good archers were coming out of college programs at that point in time. Sure. So, yeah, that's that's something that we've lost. You know, uh, Texas A and M notably is still one of the strong college programs in the United States, but we have lost a lot in terms of college archery uh, over the past few decades, uh, due to various and, factors, I suppose. But um, yeah, I, I'd say you know, I think Texas A and M is is only successful because I think they've uh, they're self supporting somehow. Yeah, they had to they go to a club to, system. Right. Right. So, as the '84 Los Angeles Olympic Games are approaching, um, how how did the process work for you to be designated as coach for the U.S. team? Um, again, it was an application process that actually started um, after the '70. Six games in Montreal, um, and culminated with my selection after the nineteen. Uh, I think in in mid nineteen eighty, when it was decided that we weren't going to go, uh, I think that's when I got the designation as the coach for the nineteen eighty four games because I know that uh, you know. Through the next four years, I was traveling to virtually every uh, FIDA star tournament, every every FIDA, every national championships, uh, because I was uh, I had invested what money the uh, National Archery Association gave to me. Uh, I purchased a VHS. Uh, video equipment and was trying to because I I always had a very very what I think realistic view of my job as an Olympic coach and that was essentially to study all of the archers in the United States that had that potential to make the team. And I filmed them and I studied their habits. Uh, I, I knew what made pretty much everybody work by the time they got to the Olympic trials in 84. And then when the team was selected, you know, I, I was... I was a glorified go-for. I'll get you anything you want. I'll do anything you want me to do. Just stand up there and shoot arrows for me, okay? Um, 
I was there in case the wheels fell off. So you knew exactly what the right role of an Olympic coach really needs to be. It's not to change what that shooter is doing at the games. It's to help them do what got them there. Correct. Correct. And so um, you have a dream team to some degree uh, at the 84 games. Uh, You've got guys like Daryl and Rick who were the most dominant shooters in the world at the time. It was just a matter of which one of them was going to win. And they're in a great venue, which is still there today, still hosting competitions at Long Beach. Yep. And uh, by the way, that's going to, uh, uh, as, as plans go right now, that is the designated expected venue for the Los Angeles Olympic Games in 2028. So here we are, full circle, from a kid in Pennsylvania to the coach of the United States Olympic team, the dominant men's team in the world at the time. And John Williams is there to support that team and help them do what everybody expects them to do. Um, At that point, it is something that... uh, I think any coach would aspire to. Uh, and once again, you're seeing your athletes on that podium. Yeah. Daryl and Rick, gold and silver. Today, John, you're living in Arizona. That's correct. And you're continuing to coach and you're continuing to interact with shooters. You just came back from the Arizona Cup. Let's close out by talking a little bit about your view of our sport today so many things have changed in that uh in that time since you stood on that podium in munich completely different round maybe a different mental game completely different format completely different mindset in in my head um and they and they continue to tweak the system a little bit i i think they they went too far for a short while in, in, in making it a spectator sport. Uh, this, this new match play uh, that I saw in, and this is the first tournament I've been to in, in, in a few years, George. Um, but uh, it, it, it is a little bit nicer for the archers. You know, they have these five passes or so to make you know, two points if they win, one point if they tie, and you know, zero points if they lose, race to six type of thing. Um, but uh, back in back in my day, it was it was really easy because it was basic math. You know, you shoot two hundred and eighty eight arrows over four days, and you know, if you have the highest scoring total, you win. You know, there there wasn't the match play. Uh, that goes on today with the qualification rounds and everything. Uh, that's changed immensely. And, and I like it. I enjoy it because now I'm a spectator. And I enjoy watching that tension and that drama. Um, but I, I talk to a lot of archers. 
And as far as archery itself goes, not not counting the Olympic Games, because that's a whole totally different mindset. But I think archers would like to go back to the old way for world championships and nationals and things of that nature. The non-spectator a events. Of, a lot of the people that a lot of the people that I've talked to would would love to go back to a double feeder. Now, some of them don't realize that that also involves shooting at ninety meters again. But um, and that's changed, and the equipment has changed uh, incredibly over the last forty years. Uh, so, equipment has has. Uh, promoted the the sport quite a bit. Uh, now, when you realize that uh, Daryl Pace shot thirteen forty one with fiberglass limbs and aluminum arrows, uh, that was a pretty fantastic accomplishment back then. Certainly was, and I think the biggest difference that Daryl mentioned, and I think you might agree is how you play the wind. Uh, with aluminum arrows, you really had to have a feel for where the wind was going to send your arrow referent to your aim point. And, uh, you know, we, we have not eliminated, certainly, but decreased that considerably uh, with, yeah. you know, things like AC arrows and faster bows. So, you know... That is a fundamental change, but it's still the same from the standpoint of one important thing, and I think that is the shot execution. Yeah. Making it click, not waiting for it to click. You you said it in a nutshell right there. You can't wait. You have to be the one positive person making that if you wait, you shoot like Hardy Ward used to. He'd stand there 30, 40, 50 seconds sometimes waiting for the moment rather than making it happen when you want it to go. If you had some advice for young shooters today who aspire to follow in your footsteps, become an Olympic champion, what would that advice be? Practice, practice, practice. Shoot as long a distance as you can reach. And shoot fast in practice. And shoot faster when you're on the line in competition. John Williams, I want to thank you for taking the time to share your experiences and uh, touch upon those personal things like how you felt at the Olympic Games. It is great to speak to a champion. It's my privilege, and I really appreciate you taking the time today. Well, I appreciate having the opportunity to uh, share some experiences um, with the with you and the, and the rest of the archery community at large um i was absolutely fascinated with the podcast with daryl the other day 
uh, sat and, and listened to the whole thing. And I'm actually going to go back and listen to a couple more of them. Cause, uh, and, and I congratulate you too, George, because you do a great job at this. Well, thank you. I appreciate it, sir. John, thank you. Stay healthy. We'll talk again soon because I, I think there's some untold stories still to be told, like just exactly what system did you use <laughs> when you when you won that World Field Championship? I have three systems that I want to compare. So I'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Sounds great, George. Just let me know when and I'll be I'll be available. We'll look forward to it. Thanks, John.